This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University. And I am here with the entire Burn It All Down crew back in action together again. Insert High School Musical, we all are in this together song here. <laughs> um, I'm happy to welcome Jessica Luther, freelance journalist checking in from Austin, Texas, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, but currently Fulbrighting in, where are you? Argentina. And Shireen Ahmed, journalist from Toronto, Canada, and Lindsay Gibbs, Think Progress sports writer in Washington, D.C. On today's show, we're going to chat about the NFL draft and all its horribleness, happenings, and a little bit of a recap for what went down this past week. Also, we welcome back to the show Katrina Carcasis, who Brenda chats with about the new IAAF rulings on testosterone in women athletes. Lastly, the group will come together and recap that conversation and add our own opinions on the ruling past this week. And of course, we're always going to be burning some things and shouting out badass women of the week. Did y'all see FIFA's tweet to 45? All of our favorite people, all of our favorite people gathered together around. It's it almost, was really the end of days. It's it's almost like that happened just for a specific thing that we could talk about it on Burn It All Down. It was so tailored for us. <laughs> it's always something when FIFA is the one telling you that you are too corrupt for them or not <laughs> ethically sound enough for them. Whatever it was exactly. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is Donald Trump, much like everything has no clue of how the bidding process works for but in this case the 2026 and for listeners who missed this absolute exquisite gong show it was donald trump just tweeting out about us putting together a strong bid with canada and mexico and then he's basically slipping in the fact that other countries uh, were to support the lobby against the U.S. bid. And it's not a U.S. bid, it's a co-bid, first of all. And why should we support these countries if they don't support us? And then kind of slyly added, also at the United Nations. Like, what the fuck? Like, where did that come from? And so-, <laughs> so I've had a really, really, really intense week where I have not been focused on the news cycle. And some of you who might know what I'm talking about and others will be confused. But anyways, I haven't been as tuned into the news cycle as I usually am. So it feels like a fever dream that all of a sudden, like I just, I have glimpses in my head of like Kanye and Trump tweeting at each other or Trump and FIFA tweeting at each other. <laughs> it, just, it feels like I must be making this up, but apparently not. I wish we apparently were Apparently this up. is really what's happening in the news cycle. <laughs> and and at, the end of, at the end of the day, John Legend comes through as magical. That's all you need to know. Well, I just want I just want to say I think in this case that Trump has no idea who he's screwing with. Um I think I think FIFA <laughs> FIFA's actually just the slimy PR machine that can take on Donald Trump. I I think I think he has no idea about global soccer and who can come up with like a worse global reality TV show. So I don't think this is going to go his way. All right. So on to another thing that is wonderful. The NFL draft. (laughs) (laughs) It's back as it comes every year. Yeah. So on one hand, 
it is easy to see the fun of watching the NFL draft. In theory, I can tune into ESPN or one of the 10 other networks that now air the draft and, you know, watch 32 dreams come true. Maybe not in the exact order these players wanted, but they're becoming a pro. And look, it's great to see dreams come true. And it's there's always a lot of tears. I can't be the only one who yesterday found myself... <clears throat> maybe sobbing at the video of (laughs) Shaquem Griffith, a linebacker who only has one hand, and he was drafted in the fifth round by the Seattle Seahawks, which not only meant that he gets to become a pro, but it means he gets to play alongside his twin brother, Shaquille Griffith, who was drafted by the Seahawks last year and started 11 games for them. So if you're not familiar with Shaquem Griffith and you want a reason to feel hope again, (laughs) you should go to YouTube, look up his highlights. He's an incredible athlete. Like he's fun just to watch. And then the fact that he's, you know, the first player in the NFL with only one hand, it's really remarkable. But (laughs) there's always a butt when it comes to the NFL. (laughs) At the same time, all of the really bad stuff about the NFL is on egregious display. This year, we had Baker Mayfield go first to the Cleveland Browns. So I'm so sorry, Baker. That must be awful. (laughs) Just can't even imagine being drafted to Cleveland at this point. But also congratulations, because that is a dream come true to be picked first overall. We had four quarterbacks go in the first 10 picks, I believe. Unfortunately, the fifth quarterback to be drafted in the first round was also the only African-American quarterback to be drafted in the first round. That was Lamar Jackson, and he was drafted 32nd out of 32 picks in the first round. And he's also the quarterback who everyone had tried to make into a wide receiver, uh, which has, of course, horrific historic implications because Black quarterbacks were routinely turned into wide receivers or running backs in throughout the long history of professional football. So that was uncomfortable to watch. He was drafted as a quarterback, but 32nd, and it was tough to see him wait. A lot of there were analysts who thought that he was the best quarterback in the draft. That wasn't a consensus, but he he wasn't 22 spots worse than the other quarterbacks. And and as it happened, it didn't even look like he was going to get drafted in the first round. So if you you might have seen the image circulating of him at the table with, uh, I think it was his mom beside him, kind of empty table, yeah, consoling so. him. And because it was uh, assumed that the Eagles would have the last pick in the round, and then and they weren't looking for a quarterback clearly that once the Patriots were off the clock, it seemed like okay, they're not. He's not going to go in the first round. And so people started tweeting, you know, about him not being even in the first round and, you know, to have cameras on you and sitting there at the table and all that stuff before the Ravens traded in to the 32 spot to draft him. So it was almost like a last minute thing as well. Uh, It looked for all intents and purposes that he was going to fall out of the first round entirely. Yeah. And, you know, there were a couple of other things going on. You had Josh Allen, who was a quarterback drafted. Uh, in the top 10, who the day or two before the draft, racist tweets from when he was 14 years old came up. And I think we can have a brief discussion about what's the playbook here with, you know, with these these athletes are now so young that things can start coming out from when they are 14. What is the playbook here? He did he did profusely apologize for them. Uh, he was drafted. You also had Josh Rosen, a burn-it-all-down favorite, who – has always been good about speaking out against the NCAA. He says he wants his big calls to be climate change because because climate change helped cause the war in Syria. So I'm a big Josh Rosen fan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, 3.77 grade point average. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he dropped a little bit lower to number 10 than some people thought. A lot of it was he's so outspoken about politics. People wondered, does he really care about football? You also had some players being <laughs> oh, asked. Oh, my God. You can't you can't be good at school and love football. Yeah, of course not. Oh, no. Um, we know oh. this because uh, Myron Roll, who was a uh, Rhodes Scholar, literally had his draft stock drop so much because they were like he split between football and being in a 
Rhodes Scholar pre-surgeon person. So we must not like him, despite the fact that his brain can hold all of this fascinating stuff. And he's a, he was a tremendous player. So yeah, no, you can't like school. So you also had just a quick, couple other things I was noticing. Mike Hughes was drafted by the Vikings late in the first round. He was a steal for the Vikings because of old sexual assault allegations against him. So he dropped and the Vikings got a great deal. Uh, so that was something else that was happening. And it's it's just all of these things. You know, you had players saying that they were asked once again in the draft process, do you sleep with men? <laughs> so it's just, I hate this. And there are some things about this I love. What do you guys think? I'd like to mention uh, Marcus Davenport, who um, is a defensive end from UT San Antonio, who went to the New Orleans Saints. And he's a good one, which is why, <laughs> like, he's he's one of the uh, silver linings here. And I'm just going to quote from this USA Today thing about him. Davenport, quote, he journals, writes poetry, watches anime, and is excited to wear the T-shirt his girlfriend bought him that says, we should all be feminists. He devours books. I know, right? He devours books on philosophy and scours the internet for motivational speeches. And he graduated in three and a half years with a degree in multidisciplinary studies. I think my understanding is that on the screen, I didn't watch the draft, but on the screen, one of their top five facts about him was that he loves his We Should All Be Feminist shirt. So like that was like part of the broadcast. (laughs) So good for the Saints. And I hope that Davenport does well. But that was one of the little silver linings. And amongst all the other shit, stuff like um, one thing I wanted to mention was, someone correct me if I'm wrong. It was the Steelers. It was Ryan Shazier who came out. He walked out to announce their pick. And he had been severely injured on the field. And so it's a big deal. And I'm happy for him personally about you know, his recovery here. But I just have a hard time with the sort of we're supposed to be happy that this, you know, like the whole framework of it is that like, the NFL broke him. And now they use this stage in this moment to celebrate that he is able on his own to fix himself, right? So I just, I have such a hard time with that kind of celebration, even though I am, of course, very pleased for Ryan himself. Yeah, I think, you know, personally, you know, around here, everybody was tuned to the draft to see Saquon Barkley go number two overall, um, first Nittany Lion to be drafted uh, oh, high yeah, in a course. really long time. And I personally really like Saquon. Like, I think he's a really good kid. Uh, he had a he welcomed his first child the day before the draft. So he's had a big week. But certainly, I think the draft in particular is, as Lindsay talked about, this display of kind of the grittiness of the business and how you're valued, right? And and it turns you into, um, it's a meat market. And it's, you know, interesting to see how your stock can drop, how your value can be impeded upon because you have a political opinion or because they're worried about you being a quote unquote distraction or how stock dropping for something like sexual assault can work out benefit for the team because they can see like, oh, this is bargain shopping now. Right. You know, really glad that you had that assault allegation. It's better for our pocketbooks. And I think that that's one of the things about the draft is that you have like all this kind of starkness on display. And like, I'm, I'm completely with you, Lindsay. Like I'm, you know, me, I'm a crier. I, I love the tears and the happiness uh, when, when folks are drafted and it is personally on a personal level for them. Like I, I'm really happy. I'm really happy. And I wish that, you know, everybody who gets promoted or, you know, into an entry level job they want, you know, shit, if somebody had cameras on me when I got my first professorship, (laughs) you know, it would have been a lovely moment. But I think that a lot of the pomp and circumstance and narratives around it, you can feel really squeamy when you walk away from it. Did anybody agree with Josh Rosen's assessment that they made nine mistakes before picking him 10th <laughs> i mean i love i love it i love it because i just love his kind of you know moxie but i wondered like technically do you guys agree with him that it was a mistake i think that the the quarterback class i listen i've listened to a lot of experts some who thought lamar jackson was the best quarterback some who thought it was baker mayfield some who thought it was uh josh allen some who thought it was sam darnold do you know what i mean so i've heard from there was no one overall consensus best quarterback. These all five of these, there were arguments for why you would pick them first. I do think that Josh Rosen, 
I think he made some people in the NFL uncomfortable and fell a little bit. But overall, he was drafted 10th. He's in a good spot with the Arizona Cardinals. He's going to be fine. You think (laughs) his like you think his fuck Trump headband is what is what got him (laughs) a little bit stock lower? I'm curious, it, like, it, you know, it seems I, I like he thinks that. I don't necessarily think it had nothing to do. I'm not sure that it was the defining factor, but I, I do think in general his outspokenness. I mean, he was on the cover of a recent ESPN magazine issue, and it, the the interview was pretty much all about religion and politics and climate change. And uh, the NFL, look, Colin Kaepernick still doesn't have a job. The NFL doesn't want to be in this business right now of <laughs> politics, in theory. So, as you so. can see, if you read the behind the door transcript of the uh, players and coaches meeting, owners meeting, and that happened in the fall, yeah. that was just released this week, which is very illuminating. As you can see, owners continue to kind of pivot and dodge and figure out, okay, like, essentially it's just a lesson talking past somebody is the players are saying this is why we kneel and this is what we think and here's the issues and the owners are like how can we get a black player to be the spokesperson to come out as a unified front so that our pockets are protected so you know read that i i have a question as somebody who doesn't follow this is the national anthem before a thing is that like a oh. new thing or yeah is like, what is that like because like <laughs> they, I'm, they I'm, played the national anthem before the draft like why because it's at it's in texas it was at the dallas stadium uh, because jerry jones and the nfl i don't think there's oh, any okay. other because reason the state that. department probably is still paying the nfl for halftime publicity <laughs> okay so about the guy wearing the headband that says fuck trump see that's a line in the sand just josh Rosen. that's a line in the sand and i like that guy i've never heard of him before i'm not gonna lie but i'm going to play close attention thank you everyone because this is interesting to me well (laughs) Stephen, i would just like to say that the reaction to his saying that he was drafted 10th and i did see scouting reports that that worried about him being the new kaepernick or whatever which obviously because he's white has a whole different strange dimension like they don't get that or something but Stephen a smith's comments about rosen saying that were horrible i don't know if you've seen his tweets i I actually didn't see it he called he called Rosen stupid and dumb that he had to shut up and that the only reason he was drafted 10th is because he's had two concussions, which, by the way, Stephen A. Smith, tell me one person in the first round that hasn't had two concussions after playing football their whole life. He's just willing to talk about it. So I, I actually think Stephen A. Smith is dumb and should shut up. By the way, <laughs> we should say there has been anti-Semitism in there. There have been shades of anti-Semitism when discussing Rosen, too. So I know he is white and obviously gets a lot more privilege than a guy like Kaepernick. But it is interesting to watch the anti-Semitism come out. Interesting is the wrong word yeah, there, wrong but you guys there. know what I mean. Yeah, like that's 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 horrific and unnecessary. And this Stephen Smith, ugh, I can't even. So, as I said earlier, Brenda sat down with Katrina, and check out this interview now. I'm thrilled to welcome back to the show today Katrina Carcasis, a Senior Research Visiting Fellow in the Global Health Justice Partnership at Yale University. This week, she, along with Rebecca Jordan-Young, wrote an incredible piece in The Guardian to try to explain to readers the pseudoscience and politics of new, or perhaps better said, revamped, IAAF regulations about testosterone. Katrina, could you please tell us a little bit about these new or revamped regulations? Yeah, and thank you for having me again. I love our conversations. Me too. Yeah, me too. Exactly. So the new, you know, we called it revamped because it's essentially the 2011 regulation with a couple of differences. One of the differences is that they've restricted the events to which this regulation applies. So it's a regulation that basically says women with higher levels of testosterone who are intersex have a performance advantage over women with lower levels. And in order to keep competing in their category, they should lower their levels. And it used to apply across all track and field events. And now it basically applies from, uh, not yet, but as of November 1, from 400 meter to 1500 meter. 
And they also lowered the testosterone threshold. But in looking at the regulation, I think it broadly has the same contours as before. Obviously, there are going to be differences, but the general argument about why it's there and the general contours are the same. So that's where we're at. And just one more piece I think that's important is that when we last left this case, Duty Chand from India had brought a case where she won her case. The regulation was suspended pending further evidence around this idea that there was a performance advantage for women with higher T. And this decision to limit the events to which it applies means that it no longer applies to the events that Duty runs in, which effectively closes her case. So what would have happened had it applied to her events is that the IAAF would have had to have returned to CAS to have this evidence evaluated. So once again, we have a regulation that's been released in advance of impartial assessment of the evidence by interested parties. And if I understand your piece correctly, the events which it doesn't apply are actually the ones in which testosterone has been shown to have the most advantage, still not conclusive, but more than the other events. Is that right? It is right. So one of the paradoxes and the illogics here is that the IAAF set around doing its own study to prove and provide evidence for its regulation. And it looked at 21 track and field events and found that there was a correlation between testosterone in pole vault and hammer throw. Interestingly, and that, sorry, that the performance advantage was highest in those events, according to their study. Those events aren't regulated. And alternatively, the lowest significant result that they found was 800 meter. That is included. And 1500 meter, for which they found no significant advantage, is included as well. And when I first read this and saw the mismatch between their own study and the regulation itself, I felt like that was really a window to revealing what some of the politics of this regulation are and really have always been, but at least they're more transparent now. So when you when you take off the rose-colored glasses that some of us may have had growing up about sport and equity, what really is, what, what are their politics behind this? Well, I think there are longstanding politics. One of them is scrutiny of women athletes that has, you know, been in existence since women entered elite sport. What I think is happening right now as well is that there is an overlay here or another piece to this, which is around the way this brings scrutiny and targeting to particular athletes from the global south. And I've made an argument in a very long paper that would be pretty impossible to summarize here that that that's known and intentional. And I think even if we don't read that long paper, I think it becomes evident when you consider the events that are being selected. In other words, hammer throw and pole vault are largely events that are dominated by women from the global north, not so much with the events that are regulated. And certainly the cross-section of when you triangulate the 800 meter and the 1500 meter the person who has been excelling in those events is Castor Semenya. And so there's been an issue really with the IAAF seeking to remove her from competition since 2009. And this seems the timing of this, given Castor's performance in the Commonwealth Games, seems particularly painful. Mm-hmm. Is Do you think there's a connection between those two or is this just their longstanding desire to exclude her? You know, it's hard to know, right? You're When you're not in someone's head or in those decision-making circles. But I will say that on the eve of Semenya running in Rio, the IAAF made multiple statements about returning to CAS in order to reinstate a regulation. So it's not as though this is new for it to come on the heels of the Commonwealth Games It does come on the heels of that in a pretty spectacular performance by her. But there's another piece. Part of what the regulation says is that there's a six-month window in which women's testosterone levels have to be below the threshold. So when you take into account that this goes into November 1, we're at the edge 
of that six-month window. And so my guess is part of the reason for the release now was to ensure that women complied for November 1. And how? what would a person have to do? What would she have to do to lower her testosterone? Right. So there are two ways to lower testosterone. One is pharmacologically with drugs, and the other is via surgery. And it really just depends on the woman's physiology about which way will sort of effectively keep the testosterone level at a particular threshold. Lowering testosterone is not straightforward. It's not quite like turning a dial. It's a highly dynamic endocrine system. The levels fluctuate based on all kinds of things, including social context. So basically, they would need to find out which pharmacological agents can do that or else which, um, you know, or else surgery. And I did an article in 2014 with my colleagues where we pointed out uh, the harms inherent to each of those ways of lowering testosterone. And they're not benign. But even without going through those harms, I think the most important thing to remember is that it's a regulation that requires women to undergo medically unnecessary interventions in order to continue competing in their own events in the category in which they've been competing. Just is infuriating, infuriating to hear. I, I want to react in, a, in an intelligent way and keep asking you questions, but the other part of me wants to just scream. <laughs> Like, yeah. how can they continue to do this to these women? Uh, what do you say? And and I hate to even put this question forward because I see it on social media all the time. What do you say to people that present the argument that somehow this is making things fair for the rest of the field? Oh, my goodness. Well, I just sent out a really snarky tweet around this. Sometimes you just can't help it. Sometimes you can't help it. Your timing couldn't be better. You know, I'm always struck by people who somehow think because there are more women with typical testosterone levels, that we should sort of make this quantitative argument that their rights matter more. And I can't figure out how people get here because the majority does not get to abuse its power to violate the basic inalienable rights of the minority, right? That, that has been something that's happened through history that has been an, uh, you know, a disaster repeatedly pointed out. So even if there was only one intersex person, they would still have basic human rights. So I never understand. But the other thing I think that is in order to ask that question, you have to accept something that I'm not willing to accept. You have to accept that the women have advantage. So this is kind of a two-part issue, right. right? Do the women have advantage? And then a separate secondary question, is that advantage unfair? Okay. So what the IAAF said is it's not any advantage that in order to exclude women from the male typical, I mean, sorry, from the female category, they had to have male typical advantage. And they were tasked with coming up with a percentage of advantage that approximated 10 to 12%. And they've not come near that. And even in their latest evidence, they're trying to make an argument about that, but they're doing it through proxy measures. They're, they're not actually looking at performance. They're talking about muscle difference, but that's not performance and you can't compare that. So it, that's also a little bit sneaky. So it's not any advantage. And if we're really going to talk about any advantage, then we need to think about what we mean when we talk about fairness. And the way that I like to explain this to people is this is a regulation that was created primarily and overwhelmingly by policymakers from the global north with their own understanding of what fairness might be. And I can guarantee you that if we had a room full of policymakers from the global south, their notion about what's fair to female athletes would be completely different. And it would likely not center at all on testosterone levels, right? But any number of other things. So it, it's a notion of fairness that I think ends up reflecting the worldview, if you will, of the policymakers and ends up creating harm to a, a minority group of women that we should actually be trying to protect. It, it, it also seems to me, and this is an even more simplistic way to think about it, that every elite 
athlete has an advantage. I mean, you wouldn't ask someone to get shorter or or kind of alter their their body in in other ways. This is a naturally occurring part of their bodies and their makeup that actually changes, you know, like all of our hormones and other things change throughout any given time period. Right. And I think one of the things that's interesting here is the notion that there is a level playing field. People have argued that this creates a level playing field, but that's a fallacy. And even the policymakers have argued that that's a fallacy. I think the reason they focus on testosterone and they view it as different from height is that there aren't height categories in sport. And so they view testosterone as being sex dimorphic, meaning that male levels and female levels don't overlap, which is not true, but they make that argument. And so for, for this particular argument, any muddying of that line to them creates a problem. And they would rather that there be a sort of no man's land between male athletes and female athletes. But you talk to any sports scientist or anybody and you say to them, do male and female level testosterone levels overlap? And uh, so I talked to a sports scientist from the Clippers and he said, well, absolutely. And I said, well, give me a citation. He said, I can't. Everybody knows it. It's like saying the sky is blue. And I talked to the head of US doping for decades. And it was the very first question I asked him. He said, well, of course they do. We all know this. So male and female levels overlap. This is not a good criterion by which to separate where we use testosterone levels to differentiate between male, female, right? It's not anywhere else. And they will argue that that's not what they're doing. But if you don't have the evidence for performance advantage, then what are you doing? And just to get back and to close out or come full circle to the question of race and, and the global South, the two most famous cases have to do with South Africa and India. Is this also a case of their federations just not being strong enough to stand up to the IAAF? Is this, I remember that terribly painful photograph that I'm sure you do too, of the British white athletes after Castro Semenya's victory, kind of huddling up against or or away from her. I don't know if if you remember that visual. Mm -hmm. Is this to placate those those voices? Is this is this a combination of the weakness of those federations? I don't think the federations are weak. I saw some pretty spectacular okay. statements coming okay. out of South Africa the last couple of days. And I was on a South African radio program where, whoa, you know, the power of the South, you know, the South Africans analysis about what what's going on. I didn't even need to be on that program, right? They, they knew what time it was. So I've seen the sport minister and others. Now, the question is sort of, are they in power positions in terms of policy making, right? Like we talked about weakness vis-a-vis, you know, IOC and IAAF. Absolutely. In terms of they're not represented, right? So insofar as I've known, the policymakers have never included individuals from the global south. Now, I might be wrong in the latest conversations about this, but historically, that's not been the case. And I was told through the grapevine that the there was resistance from countries, I don't know which ones, in the IAAF council meeting when this was being discussed. I think there's resistance. I don't know exactly where it's coming from, from within the federations, but there are definitely public signs of it as well. But they absolutely don't have the power and they're not represented on these on these decision-making boards and bodies. And where do you think, so if we keep our eye on this story, where should we be looking? Well, I think we should be looking for a couple of things. We should be looking for an athlete who wants to challenge it. That's where we're at right now. I think originally there was a, a thought that I had that Dutty's case would go back to Cass, and that won't be the case now. So what's required is for an athlete to go back and raise a complaint and file a case that would go back to CAS. And so I think that's where we're at right now. And it's a very hard place to be because for people who haven't been following it, the case that I've been talking about has been playing out over four years and has involved extraordinary scrutiny of the athlete who brought the case. So this is not a small thing that's being asked of an athlete 
the unfortunate piece of this is that the burden now, because of how this was done, the burden is on the athlete to prove that they have a right to run in their event and in this category versus the IAAF having to prove that they have the scientific evidence in order to mount a regulation like this. That's also deeply unfair. Katrina and Clark Cases, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down once again. You've enlightened us and enraged us <laughs> in proper measure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always just a real treat to talk to you. So, Brenda, you had a great conversation with Katrina, and I want to you know, expand upon the conversation you had and open it up to the rest of the crew. Uh, what was your biggest takeaways from your conversation with her? My biggest takeaway is that she's a genius, and she translates things so well for me scientifically. And the thing she translated was the IAAF actually has no proof or consistency that what they're doing is leveling any kind of playing field, but instead using very selective techniques to punish certain athletes, especially from the global South, especially women of color. That's my takeaway. Oh, I, I absolutely love Katrina. I don't do science things. And um, she's explained this situation so many times in a way that's accessible and the knowledge needs to be accessible to people. And she's incredible. And also how the root of the issue, uh, like her piece in The Guardian yesterday or when she tweeted out her paper again, the issue of this does come back to race. It comes back to specifically targetizing women of the global South, black and brown bodies, and the quote-unquote management of that. And it, it, there is a place for that in science. I mean, I think there's a conversation that needs to be that people want to have that, oh, no, 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 it's that's sociology or that's not this. But no, it's very these science itself has been incredibly racist and continues to also be so. And people use that against marginalized people, particularly women of color. Science has yeah. been racist and and extremely sexist. I mean, women weren't admitted yeah. into colleges because the idea that their brains were smaller. And so it's definitely been wielded in in ways to protect the powerful and exclude marginalized communities. Yeah, whenever I hear Katrina talk about this, and I've been lucky to actually hear her um, in person talk about this a couple of times, one thing I always think is important in, in thinking about this is like, what is fairness? What does it mean? Like who, what is that fair for whom? <laughs> and then the other thing is what do people mean when they talk about an advantage? And, and then the thing that really gets me with this is, you know, the science is out on whether or not this is actually an advantage, but even if we concede that this is an advantage, having a naturally higher level of testosterone, why is this, a, why is this the advantage that is bad? <laughs> I just like, all, all of sport. I mean, Brenda, you brought this up in the interview. Like, all elite athletes have some sort of advantage. That's what makes them elite compared to all the just below, not quite elite athletes, right? Everyone has something physically that makes them a better athlete. And so it's like, you know, you have to drill down and talk about why this advantage is the one that deserves this level of policing over and over and over again, especially then when you layer on top of who's actually in practice, the one being punished for this advantage. Right. Lindsay? Yeah, I think one of the things that just always strikes me about this. And I I was on NPR's only game talking about this this week. And, and I've been talking to people I work with because I wrote about this this week at Think Progress. And whenever I'm trying to just to disseminate this information, one of the things that sticks with me is when we watch Katie Ledecky crush her competition race after race, we are just uniformly in awe of her talent. We don't find it threatening and look for ways to bring her back down to a fair level, which is exactly what we do when, when we, I'm sorry, I'm using a very universal we, but you know, when people watch Caster Semenya, they're threatened by her greatness. They look for ways to figure out what horror quote unquote advantage is and figure out a way to quelch it. And that's just, that's racism right there. Like that's just what that is. That that's because she has a black body and Katie Ledecky doesn't. And 
I love hearing Katrina talk about this because she does do a good job. A, showing that the science isn't even there. Like, even if <laughs> the science isn't proving what they think it, that what people think the science is proving. I also appreciated in this interview how she talked about how common knowledge it is for at least people within the scientific field that there that there is a lot of overlap between men's testosterone and women's testosterone, right? I found that to be very illuminating, uh, that, that, that that is such common knowledge. And I also love when she talks about human rights. I, lo- I loved her quote about even if there was only one intersex person, they still have basic human rights, and about how the majority doesn't get to abuse its power to violate the rights of the minority. And that's what we have to keep in mind here. Yeah, I think uh, – so. It, it- this happened on the heels of um, me wrapping up my gender sexuality in sport class. And the last week we were talking about intersex and trans athletes. And then this, this ruling came out. So my class had a, we revisited our discussion and my students were just absolutely aghast about how, how kind of transparently targeted this seemed to restrict the events to the 400 to the mile especially as you highlighted in your interview, Bren, uh, that Katrina teed off on that shot putting and what was the other one? Jack pole Pole vaulting. Right. Um, We're actually- Hammer. Hammer throw, hammer throw. Hammer throw. Right, exactly. Hammer throw. Yeah, hammer throw. And my students were like, what? Like, they, we basically just had like a 10 minute period in which they were like, this is the most ridiculous thing. And we read the uh, IAAF's pin tweet. It's now their pin tweet. (laughs) Their, their tweet thread <laughs> that was basically like, we're seeing people saying this really is racist and sexist. And literally they're tweeting, this is not because, and they keep citing their one, that one Guardian article written uh, or citing the doctor that they commissioned on the behalf to like uphold their science. And it's like a, how many, like 10 tweet thread that is, that starts off with, if we didn't sex segregate sports, women would never win any medals. So that's where it starts. And if that's how you're starting, then it's just not going to get any better. And, you know, it wasn't even women. It was females. Oh, yeah. Females. That's Whenever you have to start a tweet thread with I'm not racist, but (laughs) you know, you're probably not. It's not going to go good places. Exactly. And like personally, you know, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome which is a hormonal, it's a hormonal thing that women can have. It comes with cysts on your ovaries, but it also comes with elevated testosterone levels. And like, I've been thinking about this a lot in in this last week because I am not winning gold medals at world championships. I did run track, but, you know, and I was fast. But I think that there's, again, like, there's many people who have elevated testosterone levels um, who are not world-class athletes. And, you know, that that's what I was returning to this week. Shireen? Yeah, I just wanted to sort of piggyback off something Lindsay said about, you know, just the, the with Katie Ledecky and how we treat them very differently. We saw this in Rio. We saw this at the Olympics. Even the way that Castor was being... And I call her Castor because she's my best friend in my head. Just that... <laughs> the way that she was being spoken of. And I remember tweeting angrily to the CBC because they were absolutely pathetically racist in their commentary. And I was sitting there aghast. Like, it's almost like society feels like it's okay to treat. Like, for media, we've seen this with Serena. We've seen it before we saw it with Duty Chant. But Duty Chan was less in like international media than the other two. But like this is just sort of how society feels that can treat brown and black bodies. And it's absolutely, absolutely not okay. And particularly when people who are experts are coming out and saying the science isn't there. Like this is this is ridiculous. And it's almost like it's a very easy like I don't understand why the entire athletic world is not up in arms about this. Like have I missed it? Have the predominant athletes coming out to talk about it? Like I, I know that Kester gets a lot of support from South Africans, like she always has. But were, are there other athletes coming out to, to say stuff? Have I missed that? Yeah, I just wanted to say one last thing. Like, while this is very clearly targeted at Kester Semenya, this isn't only about her. I um, I mean, I echo Shireen here. Like, all female athletes should be wary and fearful of additional rules to exclude female athletes from sport. Like there is no greater desire in certain sports circles, especially those at the top of these power structures we're always talking about, to keep women as marginalized in sport as possible, if not completely out of it. And so this, like any rule that is trying to keep more women out of sport, we should be critiquing and questioning and really coming down hard on. Yeah, Brenda? 
Yeah, just also, I mean, straight to that point, one of the most painful photographs, and I mentioned it in the interview and I went back and looked at it, is after uh, that race where the British uh, Lindsay, Lindsay Sharp came in in third and it was the 800 meter and you see these three white women. Well, first it's two and then the third white women hugging each other and Kester Semenyan going over and them sort of in this hug and her so outside of it and their whole body language. And just as a feminist, it was a perfect example for me of how horribly hierarchical and racist that feminism can be. It just, it was so obvious and clear she was trying to make a gesture, a sportswoman-like gesture. And they closed her out. And I feel like every time Lindsay Sharp comes out and says something shitty about how stuff is not fair, it's it's just like, it, it's just a slap in the face. And, and, and I just can't believe it when other women do that to each other. I mean, of course I can't believe it, but it, it especially hurts somehow. I expect the IOC and IAAF to be horrible. But other women you know, athletes that know what she's, what the work that she's doing. And uh, anyway, that just, that picture, I went back to it and it just hurts me every time I see it. I agree. Lindsay? On that note, I want to make sure we're being, uh, you know, inclusive about that. Our language, we say the term female athlete, but obviously that includes, you know, people who identify as gender non-binary. And I know that with intersex, traits, particularly, there's a spectrum of how these athletes identify. And we want all of that to be welcome in women's sports. That should be the goal that women's sports is aspiring to. I do, however, just want to praise Caster, who I'm also in this BFF roundtable with Shereen. (laughs) She's been posting, she hasn't given an official statement as far as I know, But she has been posting some amazing quotes on her Instagram this week. One is, how beautiful it is to stay silent when someone expects you to be enraged. Then she posted a photo of LeBron James flexing his muscles. (laughs) Then she posted a clip uh, that just shows all the races that she has won since the (laughs) 2009 World Championships. (laughs) And then she posts, I am 97% sure you don't like me, but I'm 100% sure I don't care. (laughs) But anyways, she's handling this with the grace that she always does. And you can't squelch her greatness with rules. It doesn't work that way. Her greatness transcends. So I'm not as much worried about her as I am worried about all the other women who this will impact who come after her. Now it's time for my favorite segment and probably your favorite segment too. It's time to burn some stuff. Jess, what are you burning this Yeah, week? so I was thinking of burning the image of Mitt Romney gloating on the sidelines of a jazz game while wearing a jersey over a long sleeve collared buttoned up dress shirt, but I'm going to be more substantive than that. So this week we heard from the NCAA's Commission on College Basketball that was formed in the wake of the FBI investigation and arrest last year um, around agents, apparel companies, and paying players or their families. The chair of the committee, Condoleezza Rice, announced the commission's recommendations in a press conference and They are, you know, well, whatever. To be fair, some of their ideas are good, including advocating for the end of the one and done policy, allowing student athletes to have contact and rely on advice from agents and to let players who go into the draft but don't actually get drafted to come back and play to to remain eligible. But, you know, there were a whole host of things that they recommended, and I'm not going to go into all of that right now. Instead, I want to burn one single thing. The commission didn't address the thing we knew that they weren't going to address, the very thing that undergirds all the corruption that the FBI is somehow involved in, you know, this policing, namely that they're, they didn't address paying the players, right? Instead, they reaffirmed a commitment to the amateurism model. They wouldn't even take a position on athletes getting paid for their use of their image or likeness, which is probably the easiest thing to get behind in terms of implement, implementation and fairness. So, uh, per, you know, perhaps worst of all, though, this framing of accepting amateurism as a good positions the NCAA as morally right. And you know that we cannot have that. <laughs> 
That is simply unacceptable and untenable at this point as the organization continues to rake in over a billion dollars a year and won't even let players have a tiny piece of the pie made off their label labor. So please burn it. Burn. Burn. Yeah, I'd like to burn this video. Well, the actions in the video that shows former NFL and college football star Desmond Marrow being tackled and by police officers when he is unarmed and standing in the parking lot uh, in Georgia. If you haven't seen this video, we'll put the links to Deadspin, which does a detailed back and forth of what the police are saying happened versus what Desmond is saying happening. And you can guess that these are different accounts. But what this video shows is them talk. He's already handcuffed. He doesn't appear to be resisting arrest in any way. They still fight against him, throw him against the bed, the side of a truck, and then tackle him onto the ground so hard that he appears to briefly lose consciousness and apparently had some teeth knocked out. This has to stop. (laughs) We have to stop. Police cannot keep doing this to black men and, and women. This is ridiculous. This is an abuse of power. And this police brutality, this is why players are taking a knee. This is why these protests are happening. And these are why you're not getting someone who's able to quickly make this go away with a PR statement by a black player that speaks up for the owners. (laughs) This is ridiculous. And I just would like to burn the actions of these police officers in Georgia, because I certainly do not feel safer after watching this video. Burn. Burn. Along those lines, I want to burn uh, this golf club in York, Pennsylvania, just a short hour and a half drive from where I am, who called the police on a group of black women who were playing on the links. One of them said, I feel like we were discriminated against. It was a horrific experience. Essentially, these five women were playing golf and they... They were part of a group called Sisters in the Fairway. It's been around for a decade, a little over a decade. They've golfed all over the world, across the country. On this particular day, they were golfing in front of one of the owners of the club and his son, who decided that they were playing too slowly, and thus that warranted calling the police. The police... Uh, arrived and luckily didn't escalate past then. The wife of the owner has since called the women personally to apologize, uh, saying we're sorry for making them feel uncomfortable here at Grandview. That's not our intention. We want all of our members to feel valued, etc., etc., etc. The women said, listen, there needs to be something more substantial to understand that they don't treat people in this manner. And I want to burn this down in particularly, you know, along the lines of what Lindsay just Mentioned it goes on the a long list of what black people apparently can't do in this country, which includes sitting in Starbucks waiting for a friend. It includes walking through a parking lot. It includes looking at the police the wrong way, showing lack of deference. And we know that many of these encounters that might seem benign, knocking on the door and asking for directions or you know whatever, having an interaction with a police officer, can have really catastrophic results. And whether it's being assaulted, like Lindsay just mentioned, or whether it's losing your life. And so it may seem ridiculous and and kind of cringeworthy, and maybe you roll your eyes at it. But calling the police for slow moving on the golf course is is not only ridiculous, but it could be life-threatening for these particular women. And so I'm glad that it didn't go further than than what it did, but I'm also ridiculous, you know, I definitely want to burn down the fact that their presence was so threatening, their black bodies, their black female bodies within these, this golfing space, um, which has been a, a area that black people since the turn of the century have really tried to integrate into these kind of clubhouse sports, tennis, golf, especially. And there have been places of some of the most resistance in sports um, because it's about status and image and, and these women part of the organization that tries to combat that. And unfortunately, on this day in this golf course, uh, had the police called on them for being there. Um, and I want to burn that burn. down. Burn. Torch. Brenda? Yeah, so last week, the Copa America Femenina, the South American Women's Quadrennial Tournament, ended. We covered it a lot on Burn It All Down. I bothered people at parties. We've discussed it. And 
And what ended up happening is that Brazil and Chile qualified number one and two for the World Cup Pan American Games in the Olympics. And that meant that Colombia, who made it to the final round, came in fourth because Argentina grabbed third. And when they went home to, you know, their supposed fans and supporters, the main newspaper called El Tiempo wrote a couple of incredibly mean-spirited editorials and their sports editor tweeted out that the women had gotten everything they wanted over the past couple of years. And that's because Colombia has had a professional women's league for all of one year. That league pays poverty wages. They get approximately $300 for uh, the games that they play during the Copa America. It's the only tournament that Comebol hosts for national sides every four years. So that's their only opportunity to make money off of their football careers. So that's every four years. Okay, just going to say that over and over again. And uh, and basically the editorial called the loss, the fact that Colombia would not go to the World Cup, which they have the last two iterations, 2011, 2015, an inexcusable failure. That's their main newspaper. So these women that get no attention during the season. And El Tiempo, I looked at their coverage of the Women's Professional League, and it is perfunctory. It's there, but it's perfunctory. So I would like to call their shitty coverage inexcusable. And to consider that that a women's program can be built on one year, whereas the men have had 60 years of a professional league, at least, is so ill. It, it, it's just ill-conceived, it's, it's mean-spirited, and it totally it sort of ignores what these women have tried to build over the last year, which is, a, which is a real viable program. They didn't even have a coach between 2016 and 2017. So them getting all of what they want is just patently sexist, and I want to burn it. Burn. Burn. Shereen? Well, as usual, I had about 10 things on a list that I needed to burn. And then I was like, can we do a whole segment on burning maybe? Because that's just what it is. I decided against burning uh, the idea of white female sportscasters asking Twitter if they should use the N-word because I think that's completely appropriate and I'm going to deal with that by writing about it. So what I'm actually going to burn is the WWE is now headed to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Now, we've seen WWE go to the United Arab Emirates, and we've seen things like Alexa Bliss and Sasha Banks actually compete. And what they did was they used full body suits, and this was okay with the athletes because of the amount of crowd, the sellout crowds, and it was great, and they were being very respectful to local culture, which, I mean, I'm all for women choosing what they want to wear and men and local culture notwithstanding, not saying anything about it. That's my dream. But that happened in the Gulf states, like in in, in uh, Abu Dhabi. So, but in Saudi Arabia, not only are the women not being given that opportunity, they're being excluded completely from this thing called the Greatest Royal Rumble. And I just find that completely appalling. I don't know why organizations, particularly like the WWE, who's the, the group of women wrestlers are thriving. They're the most exciting. And I read this on Twitter. I follow a lot of wrestling uh, folks. And there was this really great article in Deadspin by my friend uh, Kareem Zidane with uh, David Bixenspan. And they talked about it. Like, what is the WWE doing in Saudi Arabia? And like all Deadspin articles, the lead is amazing. Most of them anyway. And so it's just like reflecting on what's going on. And when organizations and sports federations or organizations literally hold hands with patriarchal and, you know, places that don't support women and women in sports, they're propelling the problem. They're complicit in the problem, not a solution. And I'm sick and tired of it. We've seen it with all these sports federations in it on with their exclusion of women. We Now we're seeing it with WWE and it's unfair. And the women have gone online and said, this is unacceptable. Now, what ends up happening is sometimes the criticisms of Saudi Arabia are laced with racism and Islamophobia, which I have no time for either. But there is a way to absolutely call out this type of toxic masculinity and the sexism without being a racist jerk. Now, I'm really disappointed and unsurprised, and I really hope that like this burn is, it's an emphatic burn, and I hope it's sufficient. So burn. 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 
After all that burning, let's honor some badass women of the week. First, for the honorable mentions, Kate Farley, a boxer with cerebral palsy who punches from her knees. That is badass. The Amman Group, a collective of South Asian women, mostly Punjabi, in the United Kingdom, who usually meet in a Southwick library, but now they're venturing to West Bromwich Albion, and they're changing the face of what football supporters look like. Lisa Turbitt, a softball umpire who also works with Sisterhood Softball in Toronto. Uh, she umpires at the international and national events, and now she's heading to Nova Scotia to teach an entry-level clinic for female umpires in a province where only 3% of the umpires are female. So kudos to you. And a return honorable mention, honoring captain of the Pakistan Pakistani women's cricket team, Sana Mir, who was an honorable mention last week. But this week, we're honoring her for calling out unrealistic and shadist beauty standards. Also, Iraq's first all-women weightlifting team, who are based in Sadar City. Can I get a drum roll, please, for our badass woman of the week? This week, it goes to Jenny Kavnar. The Colorado Rockies announcer became one of the first women to call the play-by-play for an MLB game. Since 1993, no woman has called this, and I think she becomes the first to call it on a television broadcast. Jenny has been with the MLB for 12 years. She has a storied career, and it was particularly fitting because the Rockies were playing the Padres, and she had worked for both organizations before. So kudos to you, Jenny. Continue to break those barriers on behalf of all women who are trying to get into the broadcast booth you are our badass woman of the week. All right, folks, what's good in your life? Uh, Shireen? I'm so excited about a bunch of things. First of all, I, uh, Andrea Siniesta retired this week. I think I mentioned this last week, but in celebration of that, my friend David Rudin and flame, fellow flamethrower uh, created a GIF that's basically giving me life right now. And it has me and the dawn in it. And <laughs> you'll get just get joy out of it. David's a genius. But in addition to something I'm really looking forward to, I'm part of a group of women, five women were based in Australia, New Zealand, Saudi Arabia, the UK, and I'm in Canada. It's the Muslim Women in Sport Network. And it's basically a group of women who are Muslim, who identify as Muslim. Some cover, some don't. We're from all over the world. And we're, we have next weekend the International Sport Global Summit. And it's an online digital platform. And these women are unbelievably creative and genius and industrious. Like it's going to be streamed live on YouTube. I'll be moderating a couple of sessions. Belkis Abdul Qadir, who has been on Burn It All Down, is our keynote speaker. You can go to www.n mwisn.org and register for it. We're on Facebook. I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be some really awesome conversations with women from around the world, from Jordan, from Somalia, from Kenya, from the UK, from Australia, all over the place and talking about things and centering ourselves. And the point of this was for us to share our own stories. So I'm really excited about that. That's awesome. Brenda, what's good with you? What's good with me? <laughs> it's been a hard week, but <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But uh, what's good with me is that I'm going to Chile to give a couple talks this week. So May 1st is a holiday here. And that A is good because it commemorates workers from the 19th century in the U.S. that the U.S. government decided to not com- commemorate and to make our Labor Day this thing. I can never remember what the hell day it is. <laughs> And so I'm going and uh, I love Argentina, but Chile is kind of my intellectual home. And I'm going to be doing a couple talks there about women's soccer and the politics of women's soccer. And I'm really looking forward to it. Great. Lindsay? Guilty, guilty, guilty. Bill Cosby. So just want to take a moment to thank his survivors who came forward and continue to fight for justice. And there's obviously a long way to go and we can, um, there's an in-depth conversation we had here, but he's guilty. And that's what, what a, what a moment for these women who have fought so hard. And also I would just would like to give a shout out to unions. Uh, it has been quite the week for me and the benefit, the, the bright spot in my week has been, being a member of a union. And I would like to just encourage people across media to unionize your workplaces. All right. 
Jess? Yeah, so since I was on the show last, um, I went to Cal State East Bay in Hayward um, out near Oakland, and I got to share the stage with WNBA All-Star Laisha Clarendon, and that was just, yeah, and fellow flamethrower. Yes, episode yeah. eight, go check her out. It was just lovely. It was a really cool experience. I also got to go visit St. Louis University and talk on campus there, and that was great. And then uh, I have found and become absolutely obsessed with the great British baking show on Netflix and I can't stop watching it and I can't stop baking and it makes me very happy and it's just really nice right now in this moment to have something that makes me that happy that's great so I am really happy because classes are now over really really happy about this and my students in my gender and sexuality and sport class did podcasts of their own you know topics and they are so badass like i i'm in love with them they're so good i'm gonna miss this crew they have been wonderful to hang out with this semester and their podcasts are fire my i want to give a special shout out to my friend sarah sarah who is who turned 30 yesterday but is defending her dissertation at hopkins on monday so it's a big week for her and I'm so proud of her and her journey thus far. And also, I have a new niece. Olivia Faith Rucker was born this weekend. Um, so it's been a cool weekend. So that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but it also can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so subscribe, rate, let us know what you think, how well we did, what you want us to improve on. You also can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down or on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can also email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com, where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. I want to take a moment to big up our Patreon again. For those who don't know about it, you can give as much as you want a month or as little as $2. There we have extended interviews. We have special giveaways. We have newsletters that you get monthly. It's really where the cool kids are. So come join us over. Become official patrons of our podcast. We definitely appreciate you, Flamethrowers, our whole community. And next week, we have a very, very, very exciting special anniversary show coming at you. That's right. Burn It All Down is turning one. Wow. Uh, It's really, we're all very excited here at the pod. And we can't wait to bring you our anniversary episode and just celebrate our birthday with the community that has brought us this year, uh, has been with us as we have built this podcast up over the last year. So it's really exciting exciting times here. And I invite you to check out our website or follow us on Twitter, get updates about that. And certainly tune in next week for what's sure to be a fantastic show. So that's it from me, Amira Rose Davis, Jessica Luther, Brenda Elsie, Lindsay Gibbs, and Shereen Ahmed. See you next week, flamethrowers. And I'm